Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics and that's so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, Britain's broken housing market and Labour's new plans for fiscal rules. But first, roll out the red carpet, tune up your bagpipes. It's time to celebrate an age-old dynasty. No, it's not King Charles III's coronation. It's Donald Trump's visit to the UK in honour of his Scottish ancestry. He hasn't been here, Caroline, since 2019. No, I remember that well. Uh, it was tea with the Queen, wasn't it, at that that point is he coming for his scottish ancestors or for something else well i think anyone who wants to be u.s president again has to come over here across the pond and but, but emphasize why? their roots I, I find that quite um surprising now because yes joe biden has been to ireland you've also um we were reporting recently um on Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis and his wife and children also came to the UK as part of a four-country trade mission. The UK suddenly become important when it comes to presidential votes. Suddenly we're special mm. again. Yeah, yeah, I think there are two things here. There's the relationship with the UK and making them look like serious foreign policy players. And then there's appealing to the whole demographic in the US that claims to have Irish or Scottish roots. Okay. Well, Joe, Joe Biden didn't spend much time in the UK, did he? He sort of he sort of touched down in Belfast, a couple of meetings, and then he was like straight across the uh, border, wasn't he? He did spend much more time in, in the Republic of Ireland. I think I read somewhere that the last time Donald Trump was in his mother's ancestral home in Scotland, it was for less than a minute. All right. Well, <laughs> he is visiting, of course, his golf course in Tunbury today, and then he's going to head to the resort in Ireland tomorrow. Well, on the domestic front, the Cabinet Office is set to publish its update into the circumstances leading to the resignation of a senior civil servant. Sounds pretty dry, doesn't it? But the translation is what happened when Sue Gray quit leading the Partygate inquiry and was appointed chief of staff to opposition leader Keir Starmer. Now, various newspapers report this morning that she held secret talks with Labour about her new job, meaning that she perhaps breached the civil service code. This is all tricky for Keir Starmer, of course. He was trying to appoint a safe pair of hands to prepare him for government. He's insisted repeatedly, including again this morning, that he did not have talks with Sue Gray. Her allies say that the investigation is a witch hunt, the likes of which Westminster has never seen for a senior civil servant. Yeah, I mean, he wanted, as you say, a safe pair of hands, but he might not even have a chief of staff. 
Yeah, and also witch hunt. Um, is it just me or are there echoes again of US politics in that phrasing? I think it's um, a bit of a loaded term, I would argue. Uh, but look, thinking about uh, the bigger picture, strikes, the government and NHS workers are going to meet representatives from 14 unions this afternoon. So this is all the staff except doctors and dentists. And they're going to talk about uh, whether they can get a deal through to get NHS, uh, NHS staff in England to accept a 5% pay rise. But Lizzie, you and I were reporting on the inflation figures this morning. 5% disappears, you know, when you just look at the food price inflation. Yeah, I think it was 15.7% in the latest data. So even though... Um the BRC, the British Retail Consortium, did see that inflation in shops is moving in the right direction. It isn't for food. There's a gap opening between food and non-food. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Health Secretary, Steve Barclay, has also said that this is the government's best and final offer, though. I think the question is, um, given the strike action, can the Prime Minister, can the government go into local elections, which happen on Thursday, and talk about a stable, competent government when you've got a strike action uh, and you know, halving inflation is the Prime Minister's top goal and yet inflation in double digits and still no agreement with NHS workers. I mean, also this week, teachers are on strike again. Yeah. And we always ask ourselves why you would pick inflation as your number one priority, halving inflation by the end of the year when that's the Bank of England's mandate, when it's not really something that the government can control. It could add to the problem, well, but it can't control it. Perhaps a cynic might say that because it's almost certain the government's going to halve, its, uh, halve inflation by by the end of the year because it's a very achievable target but maybe not you know that's looking doubtful to some at this stage when you've got persistently high inflation every single month surprising economists yes you might get a mechanical change in april but if you're a voter heading into the booth on thursday mm. you're seeing um economists getting it wrong month after month and still paying those high bills when you go and get your groceries now, housing is one of those electoral issues that's never top of the list, but it's always bubbling away and very important for some people. Now, if you're a young person voting in this week's local elections, the cost of housing is probably high on your agenda. And many older voters, while they may also be concerned or they may say they're concerned about the cost of housing, in many areas will be using their votes against more local house building. Now, over the weekend, Labour pledged to restore mandatory home building targets scrapped by the Conservatives in December. The party says its aim is to boost the home ownership rate to 70%. Well, joining us now is our residential real estate reporter, Damien Shepherd. Damien, great to have you on the programme. Is this more of a public or private problem? Well, a problem across the board. And as a renter myself, I've always wondered why is it so difficult to get on the housing ladder? Why are there not enough homes in this country? Um, so I went to my first real estate conference in Cannes last month armed with that question um, and approached lots of people in the residential industry uh, with it. And all of those conversations seem to come back to one thing, and that's the planning system. Uh, so I came back from Cannes and sent out some freedom of information requests. I was interested in how headcounts uh, were in planning departments and how much money these local authorities had to spend on their planning teams. And they've come back to show that the anecdotes are supported by the data. There's not enough staff in planning departments and there's not enough money to fund them, meaning the planning applications are proving difficult to get through. And the overall result is not enough housing in Great Britain. Okay, so uh, what are the solutions then that are being proposed? I mean, the the kind of targets for home building before they were dropped were in place for years and the government never managed to make them. 
far from it. So what do you think might help to unlock this difficult issue? Yeah, look, the Tories pledged to build 300,000 homes a year in 2019, and they have failed every year since. Uh, Now, a lot of developers say that the only solution is to build on Britain's precious green belt, uh, which refers to strips of countryside surrounding towns and villages. Now, there's a real divide in uh, voter split as to whether they think that legislation should change on on building on green belts. Um, And the reality is that more Tory voters would oppose that than Labour voters. And the same split really happens generationally. Young people are more keen for building on Greenbelt land, whereas older people aren't. And there's simply not enough brownfield sites in the UK to build the housing that we need. So the solutions are there, but it's proving very difficult to push through for developers. Is it really a problem at the at the planning level? Because there's a lot of opposition, isn't there, in, in, in many parts of the country to building more houses. Do you think this is really councils not having resources to, to do the planning or is it simply that people don't want houses in their local area? Yeah, I mean, look, housing is a very localised issue and um, I'm sure you're aware of the phrase NIMBY, uh, which refers to not in my backyard. And with local planning authorities having uh, the decision making when it comes to new uh, housing projects in their area, it means that local residents can consult them on these applications. Uh, Now, the result of that means that there's power in the hands of local residents and the so-called NIMBYs that if they don't want to see a big tower block go up opposite their road, then, well, they have a say in that. Um, But really, what happens on the negative side of things is that not enough housing is built. And at the same time, everything's being compounded by the fact that there's not enough cash in these departments and there's not enough people to look at the applications anyway. All right, Damien Shepherd, our residential real estate reporter. Thanks very much for that roundup. Well, joining us now is Giles Mackey, the property entrepreneur who sold, if you recall, his analytics company Home Track to Zoopla in 2017 for £120 million. More recently, he's launched Upsticks, which is an instant offer, sort of quick property sale website. Giles, welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Look, with your kind of deep experience in UK property, I'd be very interested to understand how you think we can kind of solve the this immensely difficult issue of not enough homes being built, high prices, lack of availability. So, so um, my view possibly is a little different from from most people, and government will always tell you it's about supply, and my view is. That it's about demand and and i think actually what we're seeing right now is a prime example of that you know you've got um you've got at the moment house builders uh who are effectively building two a half to two-thirds of what they were building back in 2019 they are completing uh in many cases a half to two-thirds of what they would be completing ordinarily and a lot less than that than they were completing in 2022 and 21 when there was a boom. House builders will build into a market where there's plenty of demand and the and the uh, help to buy disappeared into the marketplace on top of the affordability conditions driven by mortgages effectively is the thing that's driving the housing market right now, not planning consents. So what's the solution to fix that? Uh, so, 
I mean, help to buy was help to buy was 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 pretty was pretty popular. Um, Three hundred ten thousand transactions between two thousand thirteen and two thousand fifteen. Uh, it, it was criticised for supplying funding to those who who didn't need it. But if you if you watched a chart of the performance of the housing market and the time when help to buy was introduced, you'd have seen the start of the curve upwards uh, in the housing market, and that basically was around house builders getting the confidence to go out there and build again because there'd be a market to to absorb their properties. Um, this against the platform in 2008 when nearly all of the builds went bust and they went bust because they were holding too much stock, their balance sheets uh, were, were, mm. were full of debt and, and, and they went bust. They don't take that, they don't do that again. If you, if you look at our average house builders balance sheet right now, you'll see very little debt compared to 2008. And effectively, the way builders work is build five, sell five, build five, sell five. And that's how they've kept themselves out of trouble. That's the top 10, 15 house builders. The ones down below that have, have bigger issues. Help to buy, though, surely was was kind of a disaster. I mean, a lot of industry watchers felt that all it did was actually pump up the balance sheets and the profits of those home builders that it inflated home prices it came in in 2013 i.e sort of hitting the peak of the property market i mean there is plenty of demand for new homes it's it's the affordability question again i mean the uk's got got huge affordability i.e affordability of homes to incomes problem um that's been exacerbated by help to buy that's right well yes a lot of people did profit from help to buy and and that was a collateral issue in relation to supplying funding to people who, in some cases, didn't need it. Now, if you were going to bring in a, the last iteration of Help to Buy really was only uh, being delivered to first-time buyers. And if you brought in various other features around that, then I, I suspect you could, have, you could have a better experience with Help to Buy than we currently have. Shared ownership, of course, um, does does supply a, 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 an answer uh, to the marketplace. Fixed rental profile at 275 is well below the mortgage. And if you were to, if you were to bring in help to buy back into help back into the marketplace right now, people would still be living with mortgages at six percent on the piece that that was mortgaged. So the affordability issue would still not be there. So Giles, what do you make of Labour's idea then to enforce greater home building? So here you've got a peculiar interaction between government and private. And house builders essentially build 95, 96% of all properties. They, 85% of those get built by the top 10, 15 house builders. And unless those house builders see there is market demand for those, for those properties, they just won't build them. They're just not gonna go back to 2008. So enforcing those builders to, which are essentially private organizations, to go and risk their balance sheet for a political, uh, for a political motive or a political objective is not going to work. Giles, your company Upsticks uses algorithms, AI to value homes, and then you provide a cash offer within 48 hours, I think. And it looks like you're positioned for what lots of economists are predicting is going to be a double digit fall in UK house values. Is that right? Is that the right characterization? And how much are you expecting home values to fall in the UK? So so my personal view, and, and we have a wider business called Outra, which essentially uses the data that when I sold HomeTrack, I, 
I kept the use of the data and we built that out. And we probably don't have the largest supply of housing data in the marketplace allied with demographic data to go with it. And, and, and essentially, my, my view is that, that affordability is, is the key thing. As you said just before, that we, if we have, we have to go back to 2015 to see when four times earnings was available in the marketplace. It's just not available anymore. You know, you're nine times earnings now. But affordability drives everything, as you, as, as you said. But I think if we're looking at the falls in the housing market, the falls in the housing market are driven by essentially the lack of demand in the marketplace. So essentially, especially in the, in, in the new build environment, I mean, one thing that might be interesting to you, back in 2008, in the London marketplace for uh, secondhand properties, the price fall was only 1.6%, whereas in the Northeast for new build properties in 2008, the fall was 28%. So individual marketplaces all perform slightly differently and new build marketplaces perform probably worse than any other. Why? Because people have got to sell those properties. Giles Mackey, thanks so much for joining us. It's uh, Giles Mackey, property entrepreneur and founder of Upsticks. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The other way that Labour is trying to boost its economic credentials is by changing its fiscal rules. Now, Bloomberg understands that the shadow chancellor, Rachel Reeves, is rustling up a plan to take account of the government's whole balance sheet rather than just focusing solely on its debt. So whereas currently it has a loose fiscal framework that says all day-to-day spending will be covered by taxes, but it can borrow to invest as long as debt is falling as a share of GDP, the new plan would take account of public sector pension liabilities on one side, for example, or financial investments on the other, basically in the same way that a company reports its accounts. Well, Labour's argument is you can't just focus on the debt, you also have to look at the government's assets, because while privatisations and asset sales may reduce the public debt, if you look at the UK compared to other OECD countries, it has one of the largest net worth uh, deficits. But can this uh, banish the Tories' characterisation of Labour as the irresponsible party of tax and spend. Well, I'm very pleased to say we're welcome. We're joined by Carl Emerson, Deputy Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Carl, thanks for joining us on the show today. Give us a bit of background about how the current fiscal rules came came into being. Well, essentially, in, in the modern era, I guess, fiscal rules started around 1997 when Gordon Brown, on becoming Chancellor, Uh, set out his fiscal targets at the time. And I think a lot of that was motivated by trying to convince people that he would avoid the perceived failings of previous Labour chancellors. So he said he would only borrow to invest. He described that as his golden rule. Um, And he also said that he would always keep public sector debt below 40 percent of GDP. And up until the financial crisis, both of those rules were met. So they survived intact for about a decade. And then the financial crisis meant that both pretty sensibly had to be jettisoned um, and of course, now with public sector net debt around 100% of GDP, the days where it was sort of below 40 feel like a long, long while ago. So, Carl, this new plan of Labour's, is it just an easy way to have more money to spend? Are they just trying to move the goalposts? Well, I think there are some concerns with any fiscal target. You take a measure, you target it that, you know, the underlying principles might be sensible, but there's always a concern that people might um, behave in ways that aren't sensible. So, Obviously, we want the government to looking at things like public sector net debt, but obviously just selling off assets in order to reduce debt 
is not a kind of sustainable long run policy. You should sell off assets if you think that the assets will be better managed by the private sector than they would be in the public sector. You shouldn't be selling them off just to get down some headline measure of debt. So the labour measure, let's look at public sector net worth, tries to take into account a wider set of liabilities of government, but also the assets of government. And I think it's worth saying that the UK does stand out of having relatively small amount of assets compared to that of many other advanced economies. So there's some there's some in principle nice things about it. Thinking about the value of the assets is a good thing. Um, if, for example, a new government decided it wanted to nationalise an industry, it's going to increase the liabilities that government has because it's going to take the liabilities of that company onto its public onto the public sector balance sheet. But you should also think about the assets that that um, industry has as well, that company has, and think about both sides of it. So that's kind of sensible. And again, your decision about nationalisation shouldn't really be motivated by what does it do to headline debt. It should be motivated by do I think the public sector will be better placed or worse placed to manage this. So there are some attractions there. But I think in principle, in practice, there could be some real tricky issues. Okay, so explain some of those. I mean, the ONS has given it, you know, a partial welcome, uh, saying that it would provide a fuller picture of long-term sustainability. So is it a good idea then in practice, if this is what, you know, let's say a Labour government gets in uh, next year, it would it be a good response? Well, I think the principles behind Labour's rules to date, sort of, let's, say, let's, let's make sure we're aiming to borrow to only invest. Let's aim over the medium term to get debt down as a share of GDP, I think are pretty sensible. Um, if they're also saying we want to look at public sector net worth, we want to think about the asset side of the government's balance sheet, that's fine too. I think in practice, if you targeted just public sector net worth, what makes me nervous is that valuing the assets of government is really very tricky. Some of those assets aren't really very marketable. So What's the road network in the UK worth? What's the rail network worth? Um, they're very difficult questions to answer. The way in which you ask the question will probably affect the answer you get. And what I'd worry about is supposing the ONS makes a change to its methodology and all of a sudden it says the road network is now worth a bit more than we previously thought. I wouldn't want to see a chancellor then say, oh, our net worth position strengthened. Let's cut taxes or increase spending um, because we can afford to do that. It was on the basis of a technical change. And if a chancellor did do that, I could worry that in a few years time, um, if the ONS said, actually, we've got a new methodology and we now think the road network is worth less than we previously thought, that same chancellor who cut taxes when things moved for them might decide not to put taxes up when things moved against them. So I think there's just technical issues about the challenges of measuring the public sector balance sheet that makes it quite a difficult thing to have a precise target for. Mm, to that point, what, what would this mean for, for day-to-day spending? Do you think this is the chance, there's a chance that this could give Labour an excuse to spend more money, perhaps? Well, I think Labour has often said that it wants to reduce public sector net debt, but clearly, at least at the last general election, it had a manifesto which had pretty substantial nationalisations in it, energy companies, water companies, rail companies, post office, and some of those organisations have substantial liabilities and substantial assets. And therefore, it seemed at the time, under the last Labour manifesto, a pretty inconsistent position to say we're going to reduce debt, but also we're going to move the balance sheets of these large organisations onto the public sector. Now, I'm not saying that the the desire to reduce debt should mean you can't nationalise anything. As I say, if you think those assets will be better managed by the public sector, that's a good argument for doing it. But you should acknowledge that you are going to increase the debts of government. And for example, if you were to embark on a substantial nationalisation programme, like we saw in proposed in Labour's last manifesto, it seems highly improbable that public sector net debt at the end of a first or even second term Labour government 
will be lower than what it was at the start. Now, say so that's not necessarily a problem. Perhaps you need to look through the increase in debt, which is purely driven by an increase in the assets that the government is acquiring, mm. and perhaps therefore having some in, some look at public sector net worth as appropriate. But you can't pretend that public sector net debt wouldn't be higher. But Carl, I mean, what's the point of fiscal rules anyway? When I look at uh, whenever we have the budget, the fuel duty freeze is assigned temporary, but it's been temporary for years. So just using that as one example, doesn't it just help the government hit these fiscal targets that don't mean anything anyway? Well, I think there's certainly a concern in the UK that in particular since 2015, we've had lots and lots of different fiscal targets. Whenever they look like they're going to be breached, a chancellor has quickly jettisoned them rather than taking the hard action to meet them. Um, and often we've seen po- policy design, which looks suspiciously like it's being gamed around the specifics of a fiscal target. There's no perfect mm. fiscal target out there. And at the moment, for example, the current chancellor has a desire to say, look, in five years time, I'll have public sector debt falling. There's good reasons to want debt falling over the medium term. Um, I think that's that's got a good underlying principle. But if you're showing forecasts that say that debt is going to fall backed on the basis of, for example, as you say, fuel duty is going to go up substantially over the next few years when we all know in reality it's very unlikely to do that. Um, He's got a corporation tax cut in place for three years. Why has he not made that permanent? One suspects because if he had public sector net debt would be rising at the end, not falling. And this public service plans on which those forecasts are based also look pretty questionable in the sense that they would require a return to austerity for many many, um, areas of government. So I think there are Mm. concerns with the gaming of fiscal targets, which does reduce their value. Um, And I think there are there is a valid question that said, would it be better if a chancellor just said, well, look, I'm going to try. I'm going to make sure I always do the right thing in budgets. My, My underlying principle is that we should be aiming to borrow to invest. Maybe we should be aiming to get debt down. But the specifics of a target, actually, maybe we should be a bit more relaxed around that, because all it seems to do is encourage pretty bad behaviour in terms of massaging the numbers. Yeah. OK, Carl, thank you so much for being with us. Carl Emerson, Deputy Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. It's really interesting that, Caroline. I wonder who would be responsible for actually doing the sums and working out how much the roads and railways are worth? Well, I mean, one uh, point that I would make is that perhaps the government, you know, for example, with the railways, did underestimate actually the value, perhaps not of the rails in and of themselves or the land value, but of just how, you know, important, how much business it was going to be when they actually privatised the railways. At least I'm sure that's a Labour argument, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is how long is a piece of string, though, isn't it? Because how do you how do you value, uh, you know, a road system? You could you could value it on how how much it costs to rebuild the roads or how much perhaps if you flogged it off. But it's really, really difficult to, to, to do these sums, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, that's it from us for today. If you do like the programme, don't forget to subscribe. Give it five stars so that other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was Marufa Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Caroline Hepgett. We'll be back with PMQs tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. 
For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.